Amen. Please be seated. In his book, Six Hours, One Friday, Max Lucado tells the story of facing down a hurricane in Miami. He had purchased an old houseboat, and as a desperate novice, he did the only thing that he could imagine to do to spare his boat from a hurricane. And so he began to tie it to things. He saw trees that apparently were upwind from what he expected the hurricane to come, and he tied his houseboat to these trees, hoping that tethering him to the trees would spare the boat. But mercifully, a seasoned boatman took pity on young Max, and he set him straight. Tie her to land, and you'll regret it, he said. Those trees are going to get eaten by the canes, by the cane. Your only hope is to anchor deep. Four anchors cast in four different directions with slack ropes was the sage advice. Only the ocean floor would hold. Anchor deep. In a manner of speaking, the Apostle Paul plays the part of this boatman to the believers living in the Roman province of Galatia. He warns the Galatians, so to speak, no, Stop tethering your souls to that which will never hold in the end. Anchor deep in the true gospel of Jesus Christ or you will perish. To what are you anchoring your soul today? When the hurricane of death strikes your frail boat, to what will your soul cling then? Are you sure that what you are trusting in will actually hold? Have you anchored deep? We begin a series today through the book of Galatians, and I invite you to make your way there. It is a book calibrated to help us anchor deep, to ground our souls in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the project of this book for us, so long removed from its setting But before we begin our foray into chapter 1, we must come to this book armed with a few theological and historical concepts in mind. I realize that it places us a little bit, some at a disadvantage. For some of you, you don't know the Bible all that well. You're coming to understand it. You're putting together some of its themes. There's others. These ideas will be very familiar to us, but we can skip books like this because it is very rooted in theological themes and historical realities that are distant from us today. But if we will just come armed with some of these ideas in place, it will be a review on some level of what the Bible teaches, particularly the Old Testament, and then as we move to the life of Christ. But we must grasp certain ideas, or the book will really be largely meaningless to us. We might find a gem here and there, a nugget that we can draw and apply to our Christian life. But there is a setting here, and we need to grasp that setting. So if you work with me a bit, Galatia, generally in this region of the earth, you can probably spot Jerusalem there, uh, just in your knowledge of biblical geography. But the, the 
region of Galatia, these churches that are there, the recipients of this letter of Galatians. To uh, show you a little more clearly on this map, the precise outline of the region of Galatia, we're talking Roman Empire. This is one of the provinces of the empire. And Paul, the apostle, has taken the gospel to this region of Galatia. We'll review that a bit later. But you see right where the purple on the... Well, let me point at it. Can I use this one over here? Just right uh, in this region here is Antioch, or, or this is the city of Antioch here. So from Antioch, he went into Galatia, and we are familiar with the churches of, of Iconium and Derby and the like, and places where he took the gospel to Lystra and, and uh, met believers there and preached the gospel in, in these places. This just give you a sense of kind of where this is. But coming to the theological historical roots, we must go to this book understanding Abraham. We must understand who Abraham is and realize that over 2,000 years prior to the writing of this book, God chose Abraham to father the nation of Israel and to inhabit the promised land. Now, as the patriarch of this unique family chosen by God, Abraham became a man of faith. He became a man who was indeed considered by God righteous, not because of his works, but because he believed the Word of God. So he was a man of faith who trusted God at His Word and became the head of this chosen people. He did not earn God's favor by his good works, but was accepted by God because he believed the promise, what God had said. Secondly, we must come armed with a knowledge of Mosaic law, not to any great depth necessarily, but we need to know that some seven centuries after Abraham, God covenanted with Israel to bless the nation and continue fulfilling His promises to Abraham through this nation, through His chosen people. On Mount Sinai, God revealed His law to the nation. Now, we should look at that as a very distinct privilege. Sometimes I think we think of the law that God gave to Moses and that Moses communicated to Israel is really kind of a bad day for Israel. There's all these nations that can do whatever they want and Israel gets all these rules from God. It's kind of a bummer. Don't think like that at all. Think in terms of God so loved His people that He instructed them and counseled them in how to thrive how to live for His glory, how to really enjoy life and enjoy God. And some of it was elementary. Some of it was things that we would look at today and really wonder about. But the law was given to Israel as a distinct privilege. She was counseled by direct revelation from God. Mosaic law, given to Moses. When we refer to Mosaic law, we think of the Law given to Moses and from to him, then on to the Israelites. A distinct privilege. But salvation history marches on. And we come then to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. In the fullness of time, 
God took on flesh and came to earth in the person of Jesus, an offspring of Abraham. Jesus, and we sang of it this morning, if you heard it, he fulfilled the Mosaic law. We're, we're always prepared for sermons, way better than we know. But in these songs that we were singing today, it was beautiful. He fulfilled the law. He completed the law. He, he, he lived it out and did everything to which the law pointed. And then he died. Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a new covenant by which God would save his people from their sins. It was related to the old covenant, but it was distinct. There was a different way now that Christ had fulfilled that old covenant, God providing through his death, through Christ's death and resurrection, a new way to receive the forgiveness of sins. This new covenant was different in part because it included Gentiles among God's people. That was a a new thing. Before, you could connect yourself to God by becoming an Israelite, joining that nation. But here was something different, that as a Gentile, you could be reconciled to God This epoch-changing development in salvation history is why we are gathered here today largely as Gentiles. But at the time, we must understand this was extremely hard for the Jewish believers to grasp. Now let's give them some room. They've been over 2,000 years That they had been God's chosen people. As an ethnic group, God's chosen people, and only Gentiles who became Jews were accepted by God along with them. So this is a a challenge. There's a, a new day. The cross of Christ and His resurrection starts a whole new era of salvation that is distinctive, very related to what has come before. Not disconnected, not a new religion that just started one day. Organically related to all that has come before that we see on the screen here in this brief outline. But new. There were Israelites, even those who embraced Christ as Messiah, who had a very, very hard time making this transition. That brings us to the Apostle Paul and the false teachers. Paul's first missionary journey recorded in Acts 13 and 14 brought the good news about salvation through Christ's death and resurrection to this region in Galatia. Uh, Remember from Antioch, the first missionary journey curls back after going to Cyprus and then back to the mainland, curls back through what is Turkey today, And we remember the stories in Acts 13 and 14 of how the gospel was taken to these these towns and how people came to know Christ as Savior in this place. Several churches were then established in this region, including Jews and Gentiles, early fruits of this new covenant in Christ's blood. But not long after Paul evangelized the Galatians, False teachers began to influence them. They, 
perhaps came, it would seem, and we'll work this out, Lord willing, through the weeks, but it would seem that they came from Jerusalem and claimed special support and special knowledge in their connection with certain apostles, particularly those located in Jerusalem. They come to these churches and they begin to stir up trouble. They begin to preach a gospel that is distinct from what Paul preached to them when they were converted. There were two things that they were really going after here. The first was Paul himself. He is not a legitimate apostle. And so the gospel that he preached to you, I mean, it might be a nice guy, and there's nobody doubting the fact he's really, really smart. But he didn't really have it all figured out. So you need to understand, and this is the second point, they press the Galatian believers to continue living in obedience to the Old Covenant. Placing themselves under that Old Covenant, seeing themselves as part of it, putting into practice the requirements of that covenant. Specifically, they were encouraging men to be circumcised so as to identify themselves as participants in that Mosaic covenant. This was the sign of the covenant, Genesis 15 and other places, 17 other places in Genesis. This is the sign of the covenant. You must show yourself to be identified with this covenant, this Mosaic covenant. Now one motivation we find, it's just a little hint that Paul gives us, but in chapter 6 and verse 12, is one motivation is they wanted to avoid persecution by being seen as full-out Jews in response to the Old Covenant, they could avoid the difficulties that came with embracing Christ and so avoid persecution. But when Paul learned, now put yourself in his position, he's learning. These people that he's led to Christ, he's learning now that there's these teachers coming and saying, Paul's not a real apostle, he's not preaching the right gospel, you need to go back to obedience to the Old Covenant laws. He responded with this letter, and it's bold, because by turning back to the law of Moses, these believers were in danger of seeking salvation by works of the law when they needed to anchor their souls by faith in Christ's death and resurrection. We're a long way separated from them in our setting and time, but there are such assaults on our faith as well, to just trust Christ. And his death and resurrection seems insufficient to us sometimes. Paul's saying it's not insufficient. This is where you need to anchor your soul. Nothing less is at stake than your eternal souls. And so it would be with ours. Paul greets the Galatians there. If you found your way to Galatians 1, he greets them with this. Paul, an apostle. So right out of the gate... Uh, opposing the position against him. He is an official spokesman of Christ. And it's not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, the authors, those that are sending this message, Paul the author here, to the churches of Galatia. So there's the recipient's Paul, the apostle, and again, the stress here that his apostleship was not of human origin. No man appointed him to the position. He was appointed by Jesus Christ, 
and God the Father by means of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, then a new age of salvation history was inaugurated. Nothing would ever be the same again. Death had been defeated by Christ. The penalty of sin had been paid, and there was now in Christ a qualitatively better way of access to God than following the Mosaic Law. And and when I say qualitatively better, it doesn't mean that it's just a different idea that proves superior, but it is rather the outflow of that first covenant. It is where God is in salvation history, and you need to get on the page with Him, Paul will argue here. It's because of this resurrection, because of what Christ has done in His mission. Verse 3, he then says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place it will come from. Verse 4, how? He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So stress falls again on the message of salvation in Christ. Notice there in verse 4, and revel in it, rejoice in it, be glad in this, believer. Verse 4, He gave Himself for our sins. There is Jesus sacrificing His life, paying the judgment that was due against our sins. Again, we've just been singing about it. He paid that cost, that price, by giving himself for our sins. Why? Verse 4, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To deliver. A rescue mission is taking place in Christ's death. We see the already and not yet here. We yet inhabit this world, but we've already been liberated from its power and its control. And we praise God for it. We sing of it. We rejoice in it on the Lord's day, particularly here today. From that formal greeting now, Paul moves quickly and boldly to a word of confrontation with the false teachers, or with the Galatians as they've listened to these false teachers. He says, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'm astonished. This is troubling to me, he says. He preached the gospel to them. They trusted the message of Jesus crucified and risen. They identified with Christ as their Savior. And now they're responding to these false teachers already after Paul having taken the message to them not that long ago. And though they once identified with Christ crucified and risen, he's concerned that they are beginning to identify with a different gospel, a different message of salvation. And he qualifies. You see what he's saying there, don't you, in verse 7. It's, it's not that there is another gospel. There's only one. People are, at this time of the year, picking out football teams and cheering for them, and there's only one good team. Just ask them. But they recognize there's other teams that do have a claim to playing. There are different teams out there. They're not 
not with the gospel. It's not, like, it's not like there's this gospel and it's better than that gospel over there. Paul says there's only one. And anybody that says there's another way of salvation, another message of good news from God, is destroying you. They're seeking to draw you down. They're drawing you into trouble. They're wrong. Paul is bold about it here. How could you desert, verse 4, he says in verse 6, how can you desert him you received as per verse 4? You walked in the grace of Christ. You trusted in what Christ has done. And now you are seeking another gospel? There's only one. So the gospel these false teachers were proclaiming was a dangerous distortion. And this is a serious problem. How serious? Notice the way he puts this. He could say this a lot of different ways. He does it in a way that's very memorable. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Did you hear him? Verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let the judgment of God come down on his head. I mean, Paul's not messing around here. If there's any question about where he stands, he settles that, doesn't he? There can be no other gospel. And imagine this. You see my face go absolutely white, whiter than it already is in January. And I stand here and you see me begin to shake. And suddenly there's commotion in the lobby and those doors open up and in comes a being that the only thing you want to do in looking at this glorious being is to fall down on your face in reverent fear. An angel walks through those doors. We are all shaking in this reverent fear of this glorious being who comes and stands up here and announces to us, God has sent a message to you. Have the courage. Lift your eyes. Look at me. I'm an angel. I'm not God. But I am here to tell you, Eden Baptist Church, there's a new way of salvation from what you've learned. What does Paul say? Let that angel be accursed. Don't respect him. He's a messenger from hell. Well, this is a really radical statement, isn't it? Very different from our world. We are living in a culture that says to each his own. Everybody has the right to their own opinion. We can all think what we think. We need to respect one another. And there's a sense in which that's right, isn't there? There's a sense in which we, in a church and in the tradition of our church going back for hundreds of years, we acknowledge that no one can coerce someone into belief. 
And so we would argue that there should be freedom of religion. People cannot be coerced to believe whatever we think is right. And so we would defend their right to think because we know only God can change the heart. And if man changes the heart, we've actually hurt somebody's salvation process, not helped it. Because we've pushed them into the mold we want them to be in. Only God can do that. So we stand back and say, if, if you're going to be a Hindu, or you're going to be a Buddhist, you're going to be a Muslim, we acknowledge your freedom of conscience to embrace such faith. So there's that side of it. But we can go too far in that area and not have anything, any connection at all with the way that Paul is addressing these people here. He is saying people who preach a false gospel are to be resisted because they are pointing people to eternal death. And nowhere is that any more sinister than when they name the name of Christ. When they say that I am a follower of Christ, we preach the Bible, and this is God's means of salvation. When that's not an accurate gospel, such people are condemned. Because they're leading people to destruction. How a person is justified by God and counted righteous is not up for debate. Paul says, there is only one message of salvation that is true, and that is salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace. That's the message. Everything else is a path to destruction. Go back in your mind, by way of illustration, to the crossing of the Red Sea. You remember God brings the Israelites out of Egypt. They're pinned against the sea and the oncoming Egyptian army. What does God do? He cuts a path, a dry path, through the Red Sea and the Israelites go down that path and to the other side to safety. I'll just imagine this center aisle is that path. And it has broken through the water and all the Israelites have come onto the other side of the Red Sea. And there's one Israelite, this is, this is crazy of course, but just in, imagine this. One Israelite says, you know what? God made that path. God opened up that sea. That land is dry there in that river, or that, that ocean floor. It's dry and this is what God's doing I don't think it's really good for us to journey forward. I think I really need to go back into that path in the middle of the sea with the walls of water on either side. I want to be in the center of God's will. I want to do what God is doing, and I know He's done that. He's not pointing us this way into the desert. He's pointing me back onto that ocean floor. What does Moses say to the guy? We tie him up and carry him with us or something like that. But he says, no, you don't understand. God did do that. This is God's path. He has made this way through the ocean. We should be right here having taken that path. But right now, you go back into that water and you're done. You don't know what's coming. And we know, as we know the account, the waters are going to come back over. And if nothing else... Even if it did stay that way, the Egyptian army's coming down that aisle, right? You do not want to go back that way. It's death to go back. Yes, the right way to come. Absolutely essential for us to be on this side of things, but we need to go this way. 
not back. That's in a sense where these Galatians were at. They're saying, we want to go back. It was God's doing. The Mosaic Covenant was God's doing. It was God's plan for his people. But by wanting to go back, they were going back into destruction. They were going back to a way of salvation because it was no longer viable under the new covenant. They were going back to a way of salvation that would become thoroughly works-oriented. Because God's plan was on this side of the sea, moving forward in Christ. Don't go back there. And if anybody, if an angel stands on the banks here and says, go back onto that way, ignore that angel. He should be cursed. He's an emissary of Satan. Reject him. Verse 10 is a difficult verse to really know what Paul's saying. We're too distant from it, but he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The really interesting word in our English there is the word still. If I was still trying to please... He seems to just subtly say, there was a time when I was trying to impress man. And when I was trying to impress man, that's what led me on the road to Damascus where I met Jesus. I'm not trying to impress people anymore. We don't know what's going on here because apparently there was some sort of accusation that Paul was simply up to his own ways. He would maybe even, he didn't like the message of talking to Gentile men and saying that they needed to be circumcised. That wasn't a particularly popular message. And so... Paul is just, he just wants to please people. He wants to tell them what they want to hear and not tell them the hard thing they need to hear and that, that, and that is that they need to go back to the old covenant. Now, whatever the accusations were, Paul's saying, is this how a guy speaks who's seeking to please people? I've said anybody who preaches this gospel is accursed. I'm telling you the truth. That's what he's insisting on here. And today, people don't believe him. There are those who know he spoke the truth. You must hear me. Now as we come to verses 11 and 12, we have a thesis statement that operates through chapter 2 and verse 21. What we're going to do is just stick our nose into that thesis statement. It really goes with what follows, but it is so vital to understand the point that Paul has been making to this place and realizing this book was meant to be read in one setting, not over a number of weeks. So I think it's worthy to look at Paul's defense of the authenticity of his gospel by appealing to its source. Who does Paul think he is saying these things? Anybody who preaches the gospel different than I do should be a curse. I'm telling you the truth. You must listen to me. This is the way of salvation. Who is he to say this? Here's who he is, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is adamant. 
The message of salvation in Christ, crucified and risen, is not grounded in someone's imagination. This is not where I got it. He will defend his apostleship at great length in the rest of the book. But here, he stakes everything on the fact that Jesus Christ appeared to me and he taught me. He revealed his truth. The truth that Christ died for our sins. That he rose from the dead. And that he thus fulfilled all of prophecy, all of Scripture to that point. Now in our scientific age, that strikes most of us as pretty far-fetched. I've got a message to tell you, and it came to me because Jesus talked to me. It seems incredible, in the right sense of incredible, not to be believed I think Paul would essentially be on the page with us there. I think Paul would pretty well agree and say, Jesus doesn't reveal himself to people every day. He knew Jesus risen and reigning was a hoax. He knew that once upon a time. He knew Jesus was dead. He knew Jesus had never defeated death and rose from the grave. He knew that. He knew it so assuredly that he went to Damascus to persecute Christians. He knew it right up until the moment that Jesus appeared to him. And then he knew he was wrong. In fact, among the critics of the New Testament, it is the conversion of Paul that is one of the most difficult things that they deal with. How could this man turn around? How could he embrace Christ? Well, Paul is adamant. I know, I know what people think. I didn't believe that Jesus was risen, but he appeared to me. Acts 9, the account is given. And Paul will tell us of continuing revelation that he received from Jesus over a period of time. So yes, it's all a bit strange. And we've heard accounts in other religions of revelations being received. I think the idea is it's not that revelation from God is impossible. And our scientific focus of our day seeks to write that all off and say that's impossible. But from the beginning of time, there's been an understanding that God does rarely on occasion speak and reveal truth. And he did to Paul. He said, I know it's strange, but I receive the truth from Jesus and you must anchor your soul to it. Everything else will prove destructive. Don't go back. Don't go back into the Red Sea. You'll be lost. By God's grace, as we have opportunity to move forward in this book, Paul will lay out more carefully how it is that we are to know that he did indeed receive this revelation, that he was Christ's chosen apostle, and he'll defend that at some length. But here today, as we consider his 
statement of the gospel in verse 4, of his opposition to those who would offer a supposedly distinct gospel in verses 6 and following, we too must come to terms with our own relationship to this gospel. And I just ask you the simple question, is your soul anchored to this message? Have you grounded your being here in the bedrock of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If not, you are clinging to fantasies that will never hold and will prove your eternal destruction. This would be Paul's counsel to you and would be our counsel as a church to you. You're clinging on to that which is a fantasy and it will bring you down. It is as if you're going back onto the ocean floor of the split sea as the Egyptian army is coming down the aisle. Soon you will be destroyed because you're holding on to something that is no longer going to save. Not in the end. How a person is saved from sin... How a person is accepted by God is not a matter of opinion. It is a matter you must get right. There is one faith and one gospel of salvation. Jesus gave Himself. He laid down His life for our sins in order to deliver us from the present evil age. That message succinctly stated there in verse 4 is the true gospel. Are you anchored to that message that God revealed to Paul? How foolish it would be to anchor to something in life that won't hold in death. And how tragic to be anchored in death to something that will not hold. Every one of us needs to realize that the center of our being is to be this message of reconciliation with God through the work of Jesus Christ. What's more important than the relationships in your life, what's more important than your financial situation or your health, what is more important than anything else in this world is that you have been reconciled to God on His terms. You won't hear that message widely proclaimed in this culture, but you've heard it here. Deal with it. I mean that in a kind way, but deal with it. You've got to come to terms with it. Nothing is more important than how you are reconciled to God on His terms. Anchor your soul in life and in death to the bedrock of Christ crucified and risen. Do not rest on a gospel of self-dependent works. I will please God on my terms. Don't do it. That is the message of this entire book, but we see it introduced today. Only the gospel is your soul's salvation in picnic weather. Only the gospel is your soul's salvation when the storms of life assail your soul. That alone is your soul's salvation when you face death and after that face the risen Christ. 
Embracing the true message of salvation is our soul's only hope. Living in dependence on Christ's provision is more than a ticket to heaven. It is a way of life. And by God's grace, more on that to come. But today, I would call you to value and rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ as God's means of reconciling you to himself. Rejoice in it or trust it. Wherever you are, and rejoicing in it is trusting it. But if you've not come to that place of trusting that as your way of salvation, I point you to that hope, to that good news, and we encourage you to pursue this, to talk to others about it, and to come to know the revelation that God has given to His people to point us to salvation in the name of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks for this message. We give thanks, Father, for your grace to us. We, we, we revel in it. We're awed by it. We do not fully understand it. We realize, but we rejoice in what we do grasp. There are undoubtedly people, maybe even some who are members of our church, people maybe who attend regularly. There may be somebody who's fairly new here today. I have no question though I cannot be the judge, but I have no question that there are people here who are clinging to their own good deeds. They're striving for a salvation by works. Spirit of God, would you please Bring conviction to anyone in that position. To anyone who thinks they're okay on their own. Who thinks they're a pretty good person. I pray that you'd bring conviction to see that it is faith alone in Christ crucified and risen that reconciles us to you. Our Father, our Lord, we pray... For those of us who know you, we would rejoice in Christ crucified and risen, not merely as a means to get to heaven, but as our very life. We will thank you for what you are pleased to do in this congregation for our growth and maturity in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.